A couple of announcements. Our walk to Prague is making great progress. It's a way that our health ministry team is sort of um, joining our, our, our physical and spiritual needs. We're praying for our uh, team as they go to Prague here in a few months and sort of logging our miles and sort of saying, hey, we, we're going to try to walk all the way there with you as a show of sort of solidarity. Uh, a few other announcements I'm not going to get into right now, but there's some CPR certification classes, softballs coming up, things like that. But I want to get, and VBS, Vacation Bible School, uh, June 15th and 19th. But I, I really want to get straight to the text this morning. Last week, we looked at the tabernacle, um, its form, its function, and its furnishings, and considered how God would dwell with his people. The tabernacle that we read about last week taught us about the character of God and about the story of God. Ultimately, the tabernacle, this tent-like space that the uh, Israelites would construct wherever they were living, deconstruct, and then take wherever they were going, and then construct at their new uh, campsite, if you will, points us to Jesus, who came and, quote, tabernacled, right, among us, as John says in his introduction to the gospel. Last week, we learned that Jesus perfectly reveals the invisible God, and Jesus is the centerpiece of God's story. In Christ, we are invited both into the life of God and the mission of God. That's somewhat important for the introduction. In Christ, we are invited both into the life of God and into the mission of God. So Israel has entered into this covenant relationship with God. They've heard from God speaking down to them at the mountain. Uh, Moses is currently in God's presence at the top of Mount Sinai where he's receiving the instructions that we went through last week about the tabernacle and how it would be built and why it would be built that way and, and how the services in that tabernacle would run. Israel looks to be in a great place spiritually. They're just sort of coming out of the starting gates for their life with God, if you will. They've heard from God. They've received direct instructions on how to live all of life before the face of God. Their leader is wrapped up in God's presence, receiving this incredible revelation from God. But he's been up there a while. And we're getting pretty tired of waiting on this Moses guy to come down the mountain. Who does he think he is? to tell me how to live my life? Who does he think he is to represent me before God? He's forsaken us again. Here we are at the base of the mountain. Moses has been up there for over a month, and we are sick and tired of waiting. As quickly as God's people have entered into this covenant relationship with him, they have broken that covenant, and that makes Israel a little something like us. I want to consider three themes that are going to guide our time in the text today. Idolatry, intercession, and judgment. Idolatry, intercession, and judgment. And understand both how those are present in the text today and how those three themes work themselves out in our lives. Let's start with idolatry, the first of our three themes. Look in chapter 32, verse 1, as Sam just read. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. He's just changed. 
He's just different. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. What? <laughs> these, these things we're fashioning are your gods, O Israel? Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Wait, hold on. These are your gods. The, these things that we're making right now, the, this is what brought you out of Egypt? This is what sent the plagues on the Egyptians? This is what split the Red Sea? This is what has delivered you time? This is what brought water from a rock? This is what brought bread from heaven? These? Idolatry is one of the most persistent sins in the Bible. I think you could make a very good case that idolatry is the most persistent sin in the Bible. So we must ask this morning, what is idolatry? I'm not going for the fullest of definitions, but perhaps we can think of idolatry as misdirected worship. Misdirected worship. But we don't want to just use words like worship without thinking about what those words mean. So what ultimately is worship? I would argue that worship is our response to the revelation of God, meaning our response to us being shown who God is. Worship is the directing of our whole lives. All that we are and all that we have, Godward. Right? Worship is the directing of our whole lives, all that we are, all that we have, Godward. Worship then deals with our minds, it deals with our hearts, and it deals with our bodies. Proper worship, then, is a loving response, a, a, a glorious response to the way God has revealed himself. Proper worship is sincerely loving and exalting God as we see his uniqueness and his greatness and his glory. And idolatry hap is what happens when that doesn't happen. Idolatry is what happens when that doesn't happen happen. Idolatry is what happens when we break the first commandment and put other gods before our gods, our God. Idolatry is what happens when our lives testify to the supreme worth of something other than God. Idolatry is what happens when the story of our lives point to and proclaim, whether explicitly or implicitly, that something other than God is great above all, that something other than God is the giver of all good gifts, that something other than God can fill us and lead us and guide us and satisfy us and is worthy of our worship and sacrifice. Idolatry in our text today is what happens when Israel worships a golden calf. It's worth noting that impatience kind of seems like the impetus for this whole episode. Bad things happen when we're always looking to the next chapter of our life. Bad things happen when we're not content with God's timeline. To paraphrase a quote from Charles Spurgeon that's been impactful for me, had any other condition than the one you're in right now been better for your soul than divine love would have you there right now? You know this, Christian? So much of the Christian life is remembering the things we already know. And you know this? You know God's plan's better than your plan? 
You know God's timing is good. You know that if Moses is lingering on the mountain, so to speak, there's a good reason for that. But we forget this. It's simple, but it's necessary for a vibrant spirituality. Good things happen when we trust God, no matter the circumstance. Bad things happen when we are not content with his sovereign lordship over our lives. Where is this Moses after all? Man, he is a terrible leader. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith, says they thrust Moses aside in their hearts, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They thrust Moses aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They clamor, as I said during confession, for a God that they can see. They clamor for a God that they can touch. They clamor for a God that might be able to somehow stand against the other visible gods of the nations. And so they go to the next in command, Aaron. And this chapter deals much with things that Moses does well and things that Aaron does not do well. We see Moses maturing from where he was uh, early in the book as a leader, and we see Aaron sort of with this burden of leading God's people, and he's not dealing super well with it. But we get a, a hint that just maybe he's reluctant to join in on this, and this is what I mean. In verse 2, so they say, up, Aaron, make us gods. Uh, up, Aaron, they're, they're, they're bossy people. Verse 2, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Augustine and some other Bible commentators say that, that Aaron is sort of hoping they're going to reverse course because he says, you want to make these, um, these gods of gold? Okay, give me your most valuable possessions. Give me all your gold. And he's hoping it's going to go something like this. We want a golden cow. Okay, give me all your valuables. We don't want a golden cow that bad. <laughs> you know. This was his hope. But it was half-hearted. It lacked courage. It lacked fidelity to God and fidelity to the truth. And in verse 4, the text reads, He received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. That little sentence is going to be important at the end of the text. Because there's sort of this humorous moment in the text. We'll go ahead and get there. Why not? Where Aaron and Moses, Moses confronts Aaron about what's happened. And Aaron's like, I just threw it in the fire and out came a calf. <laughs> he literally is like, I don't know. These people, man, they're crazy. They'll do anything. Like they told me that they, I, I just brought their gold. That's what they did. And I couldn't stop it. I mean, there's thousands of people here, Moses. They're bringing me all this gold. I just took it, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I just tossed it in the fire. And then somehow a calf came out. But verse 4 clearly shows that this is not what happened. He took a, what's the text say, a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They've exchanged the glory of God for the image of a cow. In Psalm 106, 19 and 21, the psalmist says, At Horeb, right, the mountain of God, at Sinai, they made a calf and worshipped the cat metal image, the capital image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. They forgot God their Savior, who did great things in Egypt. They've exchanged the glory of God. They've exchanged their glory in the process. And now they're just like all the other nations in function. They forgot God their Savior who did great things in Egypt, church, the covenant has already 
been broken. And when we preached a couple of weeks ago on this covenant liturgy, we talked about this moment in the text where there's an altar and then there's the people and then the animals are killed, they're sacrificed, the blood is sprinkled on the altar and then the blood is sprinkled on the people. And what that's signifying is if I break the terms of this covenant, then what happens to this animal happens to me. Right? The altar represents God. The blood is thrown on that altar to say if God breaks the covenant that he's made, if he will not be faithful, if he will not uh, be merciful and gracious, if he will not give you this land, if he will not do these things, then this is the faith that awaits him. And then the blood was sprinkled on the congregation of Israel saying, if the people of Israel do not keep this covenant, if they worship other gods, if they turn from the way that the Lord has given them, if they're disobedient and if they're unfaithful, that the fate of this animal is their fate. So we have somewhat of a predicament on our hands. How is God going to be faithful to his promise if the Israelites aren't holding up their side of the bargain? How can God be a God of mercy who forgives sin while also being a God of justice who punishes sin? Because to be frank, in our day, we, we love the idea of a God of mercy because we get that. We all want mercy. Well, we want it for ourselves. We don't want it for people we dislike, right? We all want mercy. But there, there can be no loving and merciful God if he is not also just. How can both of these things be true? Once we step back for a moment, we remember that we are not unlike the Israelites. In Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, Paul uses that exchange language that the psalmist uses to talk about this episode. We've exchanged the glory of God for created things. We have loved the creation, not the creator. We've wanted the things God gives us, like our next breath, without wanting God, the one who gives us our next breath breath. We want the gifts without the presence of the giver, and we, like the Israelites, are guilty of sin. By sin, we mean by missing the mark of God's holiness, by not living in faith, as Romans 13 would help us understand sin. We have violated God's holy law. We've broken God's loving covenant. We're born into sin. We do the wrong things. We love the wrong things. We get impatient. We do all sorts of things that are sinful and wrong. So what the fate of the, the, the fate of the Israelites, rather, helps us think more about our fate. God would uphold his justice and mercy while dealing with the Israelites because God is going to deal with them through a mediator. We've talked about the idolatry of God's people. We've talked about our idolatry. Now let's consider what is happening in this text. And I think intercession is a key word. Intercession, almost interfacing, right? This going between God and man. Moses is acting as an intercessor between God and man. Let's briefly look at the text. In verses 7 through 10, God tells Moses what's going on down below. 
And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. Moses, you're the only one up here who's not stained by this sin. Let my wrath burn against them. Let my wrath consume them. And through you, Moses, I will keep my, my promises. Moses responds to God in verses 11 through 14. Implored the, Moses implored the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 13, here Moses is quoting God's words back to God. He says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven in all this land that I've promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14 is so huge. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses, or God tells Moses of what his people are doing down at the base of the mountain. Moses hears what God's saying, and immediately Moses begins to intercede on behalf of the people. Now, as we consider intercession, I want to think about two questions that can guide you if you're taking notes. What can Moses do, and what can't Moses do? If we were to read through the whole text, we would see that Moses can do a few things. He can pray. And that's what we just saw. He reminds an unchanging God of his unchanging promises. So when the text says God is changing his mind, God is just living from the unchanged reality of who he is. Moses is the means by which God is bringing about his will. That's an incredible picture of prayer. That's an incredible, incredible, don't let us systematize that out of what's actually happening here. God is going to bring judgment on everybody at the base of the mountain. And Moses says, Lord, 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 remember your promise. Remember what you've spoken to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel. Remember what you've spoken to them. Lord, relent, relent, relent. And he hears Moses' prayer. Some of us are so good at theology that we forget to pray. Oh, God's unchanging. I, I, I'm really uncomfortable with the way that Moses uses that language in the text. Well, Jesus teaches that when we pray, we have not because why? We ask not. We have not because we ask not. Here Moses saying, God, would you please not do this? And God says, okay, I won't do this. It's this incredible picture of Moses going up before God's people and praying, and Moses then serving as the sovereign means by which God brings his mercy and justice to his people. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses can pray for the people. The second thing Moses can do is he can hold Aaron accountable. We already mentioned this comical moment of, of Aaron. I just threw this stuff in the fire and out came a, a calf. 
He can hold the people accountable. You look in verse 24 of chapter 32. So I said to them, let, oh, no, 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 sorry, 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 that's the wrong text. But anyways, in this, in this text, right, there's this moment where Moses makes them drink the calf, right? Like they boil it down and they drink the calf, right? They taste the seriousness of their sin. They realize the gravity of what they've done. They are held accountable. And Moses can speak on behalf of God to Israel. So Moses can pray as an intercessor. Moses can speak on behalf of Israel to God. That's praying. And Moses can speak on behalf of God to Israel. Moses can hold Aaron, the leadership of the people, accountable. And Moses can hold the people accountable. There's much Moses can do as an intercessor. But there's much Moses cannot do. A couple of smaller, finer points. Moses cannot ignore sin. How do you think God would have responded if when he comes to Moses and says, uh, Moses, your people at the base of the mountain have sinned. And Moses says, yeah, they like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, they do that sometimes, you know. Oh, they'll be all right, God. Don't worry about it. It's just a cow. I mean, it's, seriously, you're way cooler than that. They'll, they'll get over the cow. They'll... Moses could not ignore sin. God brought it to his attention. It's a big deal. He must act. The second thing Moses cannot do is Moses cannot be apathetic to sin. Look at verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Sometimes this is an example of Moses' sin, but, but many don't believe that's the case, right? Rather that Moses has come to the foot of the mountain, the place where they're supposed to worship God, and he's actually demonstrating what has happened. You've broken God's law. And in his anger, his righteous indignation, Moses takes the tablets of God's law and he breaks them to demonstrate the reality of what's happened among the Israelites. Moses cannot ignore sin. Moses cannot be apathetic to sin. Moses is angry about sin. And the third thing, and the absolutely most important thing, comes in verse 32 towards the end of the text. Moses has heard from God, Moses has spoken with the people, and now Moses is speaking with God again at the end of the text. We'll start in verse 31, rather. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. This prevailing theme of the book of life, this book that God has written, right, spiritually speaking, that contains all those who inherit life. Moses says, just blot, blot me out of the book. Forgive them. Please, Father, forgive them. But if you won't forgive them, would you, would you, would you can I take the punishment? Can you cut me off instead of all of them? But their sins cannot be charged to his account. How is God going to deal in mercy and justice with sin? We're beginning to see a picture that Moses' heart is crying out for something that he cannot do. Moses' heart is crying out for something only Jesus could do. Because like Moses... Jesus has seen us in our sin. 
Jesus has seen us in our rebellion. He's seen us in our apathy. He's seen us wherever we may be, and he loved us. Jesus saw you where you did not want anyone to see you. And Jesus loved you. And Jesus' heart cried like Moses, Father, take me. Moses could not take the place of the Israelites. Moses was just a man. He was a sinful man, though in this instance he was acting with some level of courage and some level of nobility, but he's no less a sinful man. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is not tainted by sin. His sacrifice in our place would be pleasing to a holy God. His sacrifice would fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus was and is the only one both willing and able to make atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus is the only one willing and able to make atonement for your sin. Jesus is the only way your debt, your sins can be forgiven. Jesus is the only way you can avoid the final judgment in the end days. We've seen idolatry. We've seen Moses' limited intercession and how that points to Jesus' great intercession on our behalf. And now we'll consider God's judgment, the third prominent theme in this text. There are admittedly extremely tough moments in the text for our modern and postmodern sensibilities. Verse 28, for instance. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So 3,000 people have, have died because of the sin that was committed. Seems perhaps harsh to us, but there's a lot going on here we need to think about. Chapter 32, verse 30. We realize that we have, they have sinned a great sin. Right? 33, whoever sinned against me, God says to Moses, I will blot out of my book. No, I can't take you in their place, Moses. Whoever has sinned, that person is accountable for their sin. That person is accountable for their actions. Verse 34, on that day when I visit, when I come, I will visit their sins upon them. And at the end of the text in verse 35, the Lord sends a plague on the people because they made the calf. The text says too, what? The one that Aaron made. There is a great, great, great privilege in leadership, but there is mighty responsibility in leadership. The one that Aaron made. You've committed a great sin. Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. When I visit, I'm going to visit their sin upon them. The Lord sends a plague on all the people. 3,000 die, and the rest of them are impacted by this plague of judgment. What do we make of this? Five things are abundantly clear. First, Aaron and the Israelites are held responsible for their actions. We're responsible for what we do. Sometimes our, our privilege can help us circumvent uh, consequences for our actions. 
But no matter who we are, we are responsible for the things we say, the things that we do. A second thing is abundantly clear, if nothing else. A little bit of sin against an infinitely holy God is a really, really, really big deal. A little bit of sin, air quotes, against a holy God is a really, 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 really big deal. A third truth that we see in this text is that sin leads to death. Over and over again in the Bible, we see two paths. We see the way of man and we see the way of the Lord. The way of man leads to death. The way of the Lord leads to life. Augustine, in his famous book, The City of God, he minds that reality. There are two cities. There's the city of man and there's the city of God. The city of man leads to death. The city of God leads to life. That if we will sin, if we turn from God, we will go on our own path. And if we take our own path, we will die. If we turn to God, we will go his way on his path. And if we go his way, though it may be narrow, we will live. Sin leads to death. A fourth thing that we can see immediately is that God knows everything. God isn't so busy with Moses, he doesn't know what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. Like, we can't hide from our sin. We can't justify our way out of our sin. It can't be like, well, God, you got to consider the context here. Moses is up there. We, we don't really trust Aaron anyways. He's like the associate pastor. You know, we don't trust him. Moses is the one we really listen to. And, and so Aaron tells us to do something, and we usurp his authority because he's just Aaron. And what they've actually done is they've usurped God's authority. They don't think anyone's watching. They don't think anyone can see. Church, God sees everything. He sees what you do in your bedroom when you lock the door. He sees what you do in your home. He sees what you do in your workplace. He sees what happens on the screen of your phone. He sees absolutely everything. We can't hide and we can't justify because the same God who sees everything is the same God who knows everything. He searches our hearts, and he knows them better than we know ourselves. And here's the fifth thing that's abundantly clear. There was a way out. There was. Look at verse 26. So Moses saw that the people had broken loose. Here we go again, responsibility on Aaron. For Aaron, in verse 25, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Verse 26, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp. Here's a picture of Moses literally standing in the gates. And he said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. So addressing the people, Moses is standing symbolically in front of this gate, right? Whoever is on God's side, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. The ones who come to God are ordained by God and execute the judgment of God. The ones who are on the Lord's side survive. Isn't it still a little odd, though, that they went in and they killed people? A couple of things are true. Thing one, this is not a prescriptive text. It's not saying when someone disagrees with you theologically, you go kill them. Though a lot of us do that on social media with our words. It's not teaching that. At this particular moment in Israel's story, as they're growing, as they're becoming a nation who will worship God, anyone who's not committed to the worship of God is going to be 
a cancer for that people. But more, more importantly, Israel itself was never the point. Israel's fidelity right, is tied to our salvation in some ways. So what's going on here is that God is getting rid of sin among his people so that Israel can continue to grow as God's chosen people pointing ahead to the church. Now, let's remember when the Holy Spirit comes for just a moment. Jesus dies. He rises again. He appears to a bunch of witnesses over a period of 40 days. God's people are holed up in an upper room in Jerusalem. And then one day on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. Now, Pentecost was somewhat of an agrarian holiday, like all holidays were in those cultures. But Pentecost also came to celebrate the giving of the law. So every year, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, God's people would celebrate the giving of the law. They would celebrate the fact that God had spoken to Moses and that they'd been given this law and that they could live by this law and understand the way of God. Now, what happens at Pentecost is Peter and the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, they, and he stands up on the, the steps of the temple and he preaches. And that day, the text says, 3,000 people believed. So if we're going to sort of construct a biblical theology of what's going on, when we understand the whole of the Bible, at this moment where the law has come down from the mountain, 3,000 people have died in judgment because they could not keep the law. But on Pentecost, some thousands and thousands of years later, God would send his Holy Spirit to dwell in men and women. They would preach the gospel, and some 3,000 people would believe. With the giving of the law would come death because we could not keep it. With the giving of the Spirit would become life because God would dwell in us. God's people have grievously sinned. Moses' intercession has been somewhat effective. God has relented from the greatest judgment over his people, but he has brought judgment to those who did not heed the call to come to be with the Lord. We've think, thought about ourselves as idolaters. We've thought about ourselves as people who would prefer the gifts of God over the presence of God. And if you don't think that's you, try losing the things God's giving you and praising him anyways. We've seen Jesus as a better intercessor who, like Moses, says, take me for them. But unlike Moses, his sacrifice is able to be taken in our place. And we know that ultimately his blood is the blood of the sacrifice that is on us. And that God was treated as a violator of the covenant that we, violators of the covenant, may enter into the family of God. We know ultimately that we'll be judged on the basis of what he has done for us. It's his blood that makes us clean. But let's remember as we work our way to a conclusion, and worship team, you guys can, can come on up. These sins from Israel were not committed before they entered covenant. They were committed after they entered into covenant. I'm going to close then considering how the Apostle Paul takes this narrative and a couple other narratives and uses them to instruct the Corinthian church. So if you have your Bibles, flip on over uh, to 1 Corinthians. 
I believe it's chapter 10. I don't have the citation in my, my notes, unfortunately. I, it was a mistake on my part. Uh, oh, no, there they are. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 13. It's in the footnotes. I'm getting fancy now that I have an MDiv, you know. I've got footnotes in my notes. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 13, Paul is talking about this situation and a couple of other situations that appear in, in other books of Moses that are like this, where God's people sin and there's judgment brought upon them. And I think what he says is really important for us to think about. Okay, we've heard that. Now, how does that matter to us as a New Testament church, as a new covenant people who have entered into covenant with God already, but yet we still sin? Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. I would underline examples for us. Everything we've just read and preached this morning is an example for us that we might not what? Desire evil as they did. The battle for your heart begins with your desires because your desires lead to your doing. What do you want? What do you really want? Because ultimately, that is going to shape how you live. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written in our text today. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. It's another passage, similar theme. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble. Nor grumble. Nor grumble. We grumble a lot, don't we? I'm planning a future sermon series called Sins of Speech because I am utterly convinced that the things we say are really important and they have a lot of consequences. But anyways, some of them grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer for their sexual immorality? No, for their grumbling. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. They, they were an example, and their example is for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Right? That means those of us who live post-resurrection and pre-final resurrection. Right? That was the Corinthian church, and that is the West Virginian church. Right? That we are people who live in this final epoch, this final era, between the resurrection of Christ and his ultimate resurrection where he comes again. They're written as an example for us who live in this time period. Therefore, therefore, verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let this be a lesson for all of you, Paul says. If you think you're good, if you think you're strong and mighty, take heed. Because you can fall. I'm convinced that our relationships with others, our relationship with others in our family, 
our relationship with others in our church would be so much improved if we just took heed of our own capacity to sin. See, what happens in churches is we begin to think each other's sins are a really big deal. Oh, I'm really concerned about Mason. I'm really concerned about Holly. I'm really concerned about their sin. You should be. You bear one another's burdens. But take heed lest you fall of your sin. If we thought of our sin as something so serious that it can prove that we were never truly in the fold of God, that any of us are capable of walking away at any moment, any of us are capable of falling prey to the evil one, any of us can make a golden calf because God's tarrying. I tried to follow Jesus, but this and this and this didn't happen, so now I'm back to following pleasure and comfort in myself. I tried to follow Jesus, but I lost money instead of gained money, and I ain't trying to lose money, so I'm done following Jesus, right? I tried to follow Jesus, but my family member who was sick, sick still died, and I prayed, and he didn't answer it. So I tried that thing once, and I'm going the opposite way now. The temptation is real to be like those Israelites with the golden calf, to grow impatient with the plan and will of God and turn to our own idols that we have made. And at this moment, we can begin to feel despair. We can begin to feel that who can ever stand in the presence of the Lord? How am I ever going to cross this finish line? How am I ever going to make it? Just then, Paul comes in with some good news. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. You're not in a no-win, zero-sum game. God is faithful. He will deliver you when necessary, and he will equip you to stand and fight when necessary. That the same God who made atonement for your sin in Jesus Christ dwells in you by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit, the eternal third person of the Godhead. Jesus has made atonement for your sin, and the Holy Spirit is waging holy war on your sin. Would you submit your life to Christ this morning? Let us pray together. Father, we've heard these words this morning. We've thought about this example of the Israelites. We've seen them turn from your way so early in their ultimate story. And Lord, help us take heed lest we too fall. Help us be aware of the sin that lies within. Help us beware of what happens when our desires get out of control and all of a sudden we're pulled by desires for things that are not you and we become idolaters and we turn from the way of God so that when we hear who's on God's side we stand and we don't come. Lord we praise you for Jesus who is a better Moses who took our sins on himself and made intercession for us. We praise you for your Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who's brought life to us, who's imparted your life to us and who empowers us to live in your will, in your way, and who empowers us to turn from sin, to repent of sin, and to get up and keep walking in the way of the Lord. Lord, if any of us this morning haven't 
turned to you. I pray that we hear that call, who will come with the Lord and we will follow. In Jesus' name we pray.